This is Class Session 30. Today, we take a look at the usefulness of Merry and Pippin, followed by an open discussion of Treebeard and the Ents, and a look at Gandalf 2.0. Thanks to a kind loan of a pair of batteries from the generous Christina, I even made it through the whole class without my microphone giving out. We have uh, three very weighty chapters to talk about today. Uh, Treebeard and the Ents, the return of Gandalf, uh, and the arrival in Rohan. Um, but I want to go back briefly. Well, it's not really back. It's just to chapter three, not very far back, uh, to just talk about the hobbits, Merry and Pippin in particular, and uh, sort of what what use they are. Uh, you'll remember that there's the discussion between Gimli and Aragorn, which explicitly reminds us of the debate about whether or not to include them in the party uh, at Rivendell. Um, and so, I mean, this this question has a couple times during the course of chapter 3 and then again in chapter 5 uh, when, when Aragorn, uh, Legoli, and, and Legoli, Legolas and Gimli. It's like the two of them as one entity. Anyway, when, when, when the three of them meet Gandalf again and are talking about it. So um, th- there are a couple times when we're being asked to consider this, and so therefore I think we should sort of take up that, invita- that invitation and consider it. Um, the parallel that I suggested at the end of class last time, the particularly fun, at least I find it very fun, uh, parallel between Mary and Hurin, um, already sort of is enough to suggest that there is some kind of significance, some kind of greatness to them, that they are not, as Pippin fears, uh, just useless luggage that has now been stolen and must be reclaimed. Uh, <coughs> this is, you know, that, that's sort of his concern, and it is obviously untrue. One of the ways in which it's, uh, sort of reinforced that that's untrue is the, the sort of the dramatic irony of the comment that Mary makes to Pippin uh, when Pippin explains to Mary all the things that he was able to do, you know, uh, free his hands, escape and drop the brooch as a sign for Aragorn. And Mary responds, you've been doing quite well for yourself, Master Took. You'll get almost a whole chapter in Bilbo's book <laughs> if ever he gets to write about it. And of course... This comes at the end of the chapter that has been dedicated to Pippin's actions. So it's, uh, it, we're, we're t- it's one reminder, of course, also that we're reading Bilbo's book. But um, though, of course, as it will turn out, it will not be exclusively Bilbo who does the writing. But, um, but of course, this, that, that, that fact shows that they, uh, Mary, certainly, despite Pippin's anxiety, has some awareness of, you know, that this is significant. It's, of course, at least locally significant for them personally that Pippin has helped to save their lives. But... Um, especially, as he said, guessing Grishnok's game, which actually allows them to escape. So we see, that, but, but there's also a sense of a larger significance, not just, hey, something is actually happening that involves Merry and Pippin in some kind of significant way. Um, Pippin asks himself in the little luggage section, he says, what good have I been? What at this point is the answer to that question? As far as we can see, what good have Merry and Pippin been? Yeah, okay. Um, they distracted the orcs. I mean, they could have gone after Frodo and Sam, but they distracted the orcs. Yeah, they, in the movies, they make a, the movies make a point of an act of sort of self-sacrifice on Merry and Pippin's part. Um, in, the, in the book, they don't make that kind of an active move of self-sacrifice. But this is actually an implication uh, that I was thinking about as I... Uh, Uh, my microphone died at the end of class last time, so I lost like the last 10 minutes and had to redo some of it. And and as I was redoing it, I actually thought of some things that I didn't say in class, one of which was uh, the parallel between 
between Mary and Hurin that's being established there. The fight against the orcs that Boromir does, particularly Boromir, becomes like the one-man last stand of the men of Dor Loman. Remember what they were doing, what Hurin et al. were doing in the Fens of Sarek was delaying the enemy long enough for, for Turgon and the elves of Gondolin to escape and get back to Gondolin without being spied where they were going. Um, one of the effects, certainly, of Boromir's fight uh, and self-sacrifice, and Merry and Pippin's also, is to delay and distract the orcs. Had that not happened, had they just had that swarm of orcs just come in onto their camp where they left and come across the signs of Merry and Pippin, which they very likely would have been able to read just like Aragorn did, of, of, of Frodo and Sam crossing the river, certainly Grishnok would have been very interested to find that a couple halflings went across the river over to the eastern side. That's prevented by the fact that they're first delayed by the fight with Boromir and Merry and Pippin. Um, and also, of course, Boromir is blowing his horn uh, continually, which uh, clearly also spooks them, like they think they're going to be set upon by by whoever are the allies of this guy who has been blowing his horn. So they just grab the two halflings that they have there in front of them and take back off right away. Um, and so never find the campsite and never find any, any evidence that Mary and Pippin left. So I think we can see actually sort of one use that they do have. They do, I think, contribute uh, to the saving or the preservation of Frodo and Sam. Yeah. Derek, what else? So it's important that they contributed to Boromir's redemption. Yes. Yeah. And as, as I mentioned last time, of course, I was a little shy about how I quoted it because, you know, I, in case... You know, I do want to do any spoilers. It's, of course, the resurrected Gandalf who says, uh, I, I didn't attribute the quotation last time, uh, that it was good for them to have come even if just to provide the occasion for Boromir to, to redeem himself and to, uh, and to sacrifice his life. That is clearly a very important thing. And as Gandalf says, it, it all would have been worth it even if only for that. But, but there's more than that too. What else? What else? What is the point of... What has happened now? When Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are talking to Gandalf, Aragorn is saying, well, gosh, it seems like we've been wasting our time. I mean, here we had this heroic chase across Rohan, and we've, like, set, you know, like a local sprinter's record, you know, cross-country record for the trip across Rohan, and now you're saying we just give up? We've actually, we haven't done anything. Like, we ran all this way, and now we're just leaving, and... What was the point? And Gandalf suggested there is a point. Aaron? The two things is that it puts um, the trio closer to Rohan to go and help them, and then Merry and Pippin are rousing the ends to war. Good. Two very important things. Gandalf does say, thus have we come together who might have met too late. Right. So the fact that they meet Gandalf again here wouldn't have happened had they not been chasing uh, the orcs who were, who were taking Merry and Pippin. And Merry and Pippin... Uh, have been brought with marvelous speed to the place where otherwise they never would have come, which was Fangorn Forest. Which, and of course, Aragorn himself still says, I still don't see what the point of that is. And Gandalf is like, just trust me, it's a good thing. Right? And clearly, they, you know, as he says, they are like the falling of two pebbles, which starts an avalanche. And certainly it is an avalanche that's going to be coming out of Fangorn. Um, and that's their fault. Or that's, they, they did that. They were instrumental in rousing Treebeard and the Ents. Marvin? Um, just to further um, Aaron's point, if they hadn't made that trek across Rohan, they wouldn't have run into Aomer. 
And so that whole, if they even ended up in Rohan later, that would have turned out completely differently. Yes, good. I, I agree that connection with Amir is a really important one, especially since without that, well, it, their meeting with Amir really informs how they approach things in Rohan and helps them to understand what's going on down in Rohan much more clearly. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, all of these things serve a purpose. Gandalf's emphasis is that the malice of their enemies has actually served to bring these things about. Aragorn's decision, his just decision, as Gandalf points out, to pursue the orcs and to try to rescue Merry and Pippin has had good results. But the malice of their enemies, that is the kidnapping of Merry and Pippin, uh, and the and their orc dragging across Rohan, as Pippin will later characterize it, um, has also borne good fruit. And this is actually the kind of thing that they've been involved in before. Pippin has done one other thing. He makes a contribution in the Fellowship of the Ring. Big one. Yeah, he throws a rock down the rock. Which killed Gandalf. Yep. If it hadn't been for Pippin, Gandalf wouldn't have died. Exactly, exactly. So once again, as should cease surprising us by now, bad choices made by people, even which looked disastrous at the time, uh, bring about really good results and go on to bring about things more wonderful than the people who did them could possibly have imagined, as of course is certainly the case uh, with Gandalf and his death and resurrection. Um, So, now I don't, want to do an elaborate parallel of Pippin and Judas Iscariot. Um, <laughs> we'll just leave that one right alone. Yeah, Derek, go ahead. Well, also, um, I want to say this before we move on to the other chapters. Good. But, um, I think it's really important, uh, the quality between Grishnok and Umluk, to like, show that Saruman and Sauron's alliance is not a close alliance. You know, they're, they're, they're skeptical of each other. They're, they, they're really, you know... Certainly we do we do learn a lot about sort of the enemy dynamics. Um, and that is certainly an important narrative function of that chapter. Um, we get more of a view of the inside, not just of the current political situation between Saruman and Sauron, but uh, but to the nature of orcs as well. Um, this is the longest we will spend uh, with with a group of orcs, actually interacting with them and see how, seeing how they interact on their own. Um, and it's an, it's, it's an important picture, I think. Because we see that going on. The, the, the feuds and squabbling among the orcs is at least as reflective of the way orcs behave in, gener- in general as it is of the political situation between uh, Sauron and Saruman. But we should talk about tribute. Treebeard and the ants. A whole lot I can say about Treebeard and the ants. What interested you about Treebeard and the ants? Yeah, Jordan, go ahead. Uh, I don't have a page reference, but in the ant move, it places a great deal of emphasis on how at first they'd expected the physical appearance of ants to be the same as hobbits appeared to outsiders. Yes, yes. And it pointed out they were the same, they just didn't appear the same. They all looked totally different. Yes. So when you looked upon them more, you realized that poor essence was, was as similar as hobbits are really to each other. Right. Marked visibly by their eyes. Right. They all had the same eyes. 
Um, and even Treebeard talks that way when he talks about the Entwives and how the Entwives had changed physically. He says, but their eyes were still the eyes of our people. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, they are... I think that that's a really interesting observation from sort of a thematic standpoint to kind of talk about the basic similarities despite outward differences. Um, yeah, Ents are, Ents are in a different category. Um, as we already knew back in the Silmarillion, the Ents are not exactly children of Iluvatar. Remember when the Ents come about? When are the Ents conceptualized in the Silmarillion, Barda? Um, I'm going to forget names, but it's when the dwarves are brought about. Yes, by Aule. His wife. Yavanna. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, she gets very jealous, and she's like, I, w- I want people too. And, and Lutar's like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, she goes to Manwe, and she and Manwe talk about it. And she points out, now notice, it's, it's, not, it's not at that point in innovation. She's not like, hey, I want to make new people too, totally. She says to Manwe uh, that she wants people to defend growing things, um, to defend them from the dwarves and men and other people who are going to chop them down and, 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 and harm them. And Manwe said, you know, she wishes that there were some, the trees particularly, who could speak and defend uh, the other plants. And Manwe's response is, that is a strange thought. And Yovana's response is, yet it was in the song. So she says, this was already an idea. This, this is not an innovation. It's in the great music was this idea of the, the shepherds of the trees. Yeah, yeah. The thing that interests me most is that Treebeard specifically states that the Entwives did not die. Um, but I, also their language, I found like the philosophy of their language is very interesting because uh, a lot of times in linguistics we talk about how language influences the way people see things. Yes. And for the ends, the way that they see the world has really influenced the formation of their language. Yes. Uh, the two instances that I can think of are when he says that hill is too short of a word for something that has stood so long. And that um, they've shortened the name of Lothlorien, uh, and uh, Treebeard states that he thinks it is fading, not growing. Right, right. Yeah, uh, uh, he says that uh, the real names of things are like the stories of them, right? And so, you know, re- real names are, you know, tell the story of the thing that they name. Um, and that's an interesting linguistic theory. Um, he is not. Of course, one of the factors which informs the normal formation of normal language is a desire for efficiency in communication. We don't communicate like that because we can't communicate like that. It would take forever to do so. Um, Treebeard has no such inhibitions, however. So there is a there is a sense in which the language of the Ents is... There's only one sense, but there is a sense in which the language of the ants is sort of pure language. Language as it could be, if we all had an almost infinite amount of time to stand around and talk to each other. <laughs> right? Um, that everything's name, every word in the language is the full story of the thing it describes. Um, that would be cool. 
But, of course, most language can't do that. So that, I think that that is, uh, uh, is a really fun moment about the, uh, about the ends. Yeah? If you don't mind me asking a question about the nature of the ends. Sure. I don't have a reference, but uh, Treebeard says at some point that some ends are becoming more tree-ish and some trees are becoming more entish. Yes. Does that mean, like, trees are actually becoming ends? Because Treebeard almost makes it sound like it's a bad thing, and it's like he almost wants to put the trees back to being trees. But if the race of the ants is dying, then wouldn't that, that be a good thing? I don't, I don't think so. He, I, that is, I don't, I, I don't think that it's a bad thing um, for him. He does say that sometimes when that happens, you find that the trees have bad hearts. Um, so even Treebeard does not operate under the assumption that all trees are good. Um, you know, he loves and defends trees, but he recognizes part of respecting trees as individual creatures with their own sort of individual dignity is recognizing that they can make choices which might be bad choices, right? Um, so the very idea of a wicked tree is based upon a pretty radical pro-tree perspective. I mean, that is, you've, you've ascribed to it a fair amount of personal dignity uh, to say that it can become corrupt, uh, by its own volition, that it, it, can, it can make choices uh, which lead to moral corruption. Um, Treebeard clearly thinks that way about trees and recognizes, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat the fact, you know, of his own land. I dare say there are still some, there are still some very black patches. There are some places in my country that I would not recommend you go, he tells them. That would be really dangerous. You'd probably die if you went there. He doesn't say those things, but he suggests that they're, they're compared, that, that the old forest next to the Shire um, is uh, kind of embittered. And we saw the trees there being not just Old Man Willow, who is clearly one of those bad trees, but uh, even the sort of run-of-the-mill trees were, well, at least kind of prickly towards the Hobbit, if not actually malevolent, right? I mean, that is, they... Remember when they like drop the branch on uh, you know near them because Frodo is singing that song, um, <laughs> song that I that 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 line that Mary says to him, which I always like to take out of context uh, at the end of this semester uh, when he says of the trees, they don't like all that about ending and failing, and I'm like, my students are the same way. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they. Anyway, I mean, so they hear what, they, what he's singing and they, they, they don't like it. And, they, and, you know, Mary tells a story about when they attacked the, the hedge at one point and there was this, like, battle between the hobbits and the trees. So, I mean, it's... The trees there are, are, are kind of grumpy, but that's nothing compared to the trees in some places in Fangorn. Um, that's what he's... You know, and, and he clearly doesn't approve of this kind of behavior. I mean, he, he, he um, speaks very... Uh, very approvingly of the trees who are not like that, um, though even still with respect for those who who are uh, bad right through, as he says. But are they becoming ants, or are they just waking up? It's a little confused. Yeah, they're waking up. It's not at all clear that they will actually cross the line, but it's a little uncertain because he says that the ants are changeable. Um, they're more changeable than elves. They're quicker at taking on the color of the outside world. Um, this is why, as he describes 
in the lapse of time between the initial parting of the Ents and the Entwives and that time when he goes and finds Fimbrethel, the Ent Maiden, again. Um, and she's changed, physically changed, because of their labor uh, in agriculture and working in the fields. Um, she was bent and browned, and, and, and her, her, her body looks different. I mean, they, they're almost unrecognizable, except for the eyes. Um, so Ents can change physically over time. Um, and he says some become like trees, and the trees, you know, he says that some of his trees are limb-lithe, and many can talk to me. And we see them moving their branches, and, and we will see, we see at the end of that chapter, some trees walking. Um, you know, the, the forest of Fangorn marching to war. Um, Tolkien loved this idea. Um, this idea famously goes back to um, Tolkien's uh, childhood disappointment when reading the play Macbeth. Um, yeah, yeah, he, 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 he tells the story a couple times. That when he was a kid, he reads the story, he, he, you know, he read Macbeth, and he, he you know, about, uh, you know, the prophecy that, you know, of, of great Burnham Wood uh, coming to hide Dunsinane Hill. Um, and he loved that idea of, like, you know, awesome, you know, this is not going to happen until the forest marches. And then he was so disappointed when the fulfillment of this prophecy is so lame, which is just, like, guys holding up branches walking to war. I mean, like, you know, and he really wanted to see the forest marching uh, to war. So, um, you know, the, 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 the forest following Fangorn and the ants uh, to Isengard is, like, the fulfillment of what he had, like, wished Shakespeare had done. But... Um, uh, so anyway, so he loves that. We will see uh, this sort of other category um, that he will sort of explain, what he calls horns, which are clearly animate trees. They can walk around. They can do... We don't ever even know what to orcs <laughs> when they come <laughs> into the forest. But it's not pleasant, I'm really quite sure. They just disappear and are never seen again, and we don't know what happens to them. But uh, anyway, so I mean, they, they they can move, they can do things, they can they can they, they can they can walk at high speeds. They can walk. Um, they can speak, at least to the ants. But they're not considered ants, and we will see at sometimes the ants acting like shepherds to groups of horns. So I. It seems that it's not necessarily possible completely to cross the line. Um, as you say, they wouldn't have a very big population problem if all trees were potential ants, yeah. right? Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, the, the, the lack of entings does lead in Treebeard's, um, according to, to Treebeard's account, to the, I mean, he, he considers them a dying race, ants. Um, and clearly he wouldn't if trees could just become full ants and there'd be really no difference. Um, so there's a lot of movement, and he talks about that. Sheep become, become like shepherds and shepherds like sheep. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still sheep and shepherds, it seems. Um, Old Man Willow, it seems, would be an example of this kind of category as well. Um, but he doesn't talk about him very particularly. I mean, he... Treebeard doesn't talk about him at all, and we don't know all that much about Old Man Willow's history. Yeah, yeah. Darren? Also, um, from uh, the character of Quickbeam, yeah. it, it's clear that you know, they value the tradition of their language because like, 
It's like, um, I can just imagine, it's like, can you talk, talk right me to the hill that is with, and he's like, oh yeah, right there. Like, <laughs> the fact that he's able to, like, know what they're going to say before they're done. Yes. So they really value the long tradition and quickly it's just like, okay, we have to. It's kind of like the rebellious tree. Yes, though I love the bit at the beginning when uh, Treebeard introduces him as a hasty aunt and he stands there and doesn't say anything and Mary and Pippin are waiting for him to show signs of hastiness, right? Mm-hmm. Apparently hastiness is still relative, but uh, compared to other ants, he is, uh, he is uh, very hasty. Yeah? Um, going back to a little bit what Kelly was saying as far as language and Derek, um, I just, I guess this is kind of more simple, but I like the, I like the, the noises that you, and when you, I read some of the parts out loud, so just like, so yeah, that's the rooming and humming Especially, in the end. Yeah, uh, they're going to war song. They have a lot of that sound in there. Um, doom, drum, hum, doom. They say doom a lot because doom is imminent. Um, I just I like the the humming in the because it sounds like like wind going to trees and that kind of deep drone and creaking. Yes, really it is really cool. Uh, and the uh, the uh, the two eyes and guard song is possibly my favorite verse in the whole Lord of the Rings. Not to say that it's my favorite poem, but as far as the pure musical quality of the verse, um, I, reading, I, I could read that one aloud over and over again. I, and I just, I love the sound of it and the rhythm of it. Um, he does a wonderful job of connecting that with, and I agree. There is this sense, especially when they're walking around. It's kind of like with Tom Bombadil, where you know you're listening to Tom Bombadil singing his ridiculous nonsense songs, and even before we get that line towards the end about the the ancient language of 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 of, of wonder. Even before then, perhaps we begin to get a suspicion that maybe Tom isn't just spouting utter nonsense, but it's just that he's talking in a way that we can't understand. And you get that same impression with Treebeard. At first, it just sounds like he's like, but then he's going along and he's making those noises and and they hear the echoes in the trees that actually he's just speaking tree (laughs) there, that he's speaking, you know, that he's only ever half of the time speaking speaking in their language, in, in their hasty language, and he's also at the same time kind of punctuating it with what seems to be something like tree talk. Yeah, yeah, Lauren? Um, what interested me was the relationship that Treebeard describes between the Ents and the Elves. Yes. And um, on page 456, uh, Pippin asks, why did Celeborn warn us against Tanborn? And then he starts talking about Lothlorien and Treebeard says, perhaps they are right. Maybe it is fading, not growing. Now, to me, that sounds like, in his opinion, what the elves are doing is artificial in preserving nature. He... It is an interesting question, because you could say that Ents, like... And we've looked at before at how elves, as you say, their emphasis is on... Preservation, the preservation of memory, the preservation of, 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 of old things, and the preservation of art and beauty and all those things. Ents are interested in preservation too, right? Um, he's preserving the forests. But there's clearly a very different kind of preservation going on there, right? The emphasis is not really the same at all. And one of the ways in which it seems different Treebeard doesn't appear to resist the natural flow of time and consequences of time. 
aging, decay. Elrond, when speaking of the Old Forest, describes, you know, says that Fangorn and the Old Forest are the two last remnants of a forest that once spanned the whole continent. And that there are still dark memories in places like the Old Forest where the trees still remember the time when they were lords and kind of resent the fact that there's just this one comparatively tiny little group of trees left from the great forest that they used to be. We don't hear that from Treebeard. You'd think he'd give voice to that if anyone would, but he doesn't. Um, He doesn't seem to speak with any approval. He doesn't fight that fight. You know, he doesn't... uh, He resists, of course, orcs coming and cutting down his forest. Um, But he resists it because it's an evil act. He never even looks back wistfully on the time when the forest was greater and and like we were more powerful or anything like that. He's not trying to preserve the forest in that way. It's not like a glimpse of the elder days. The forest is getting smaller. He is, his power is decaying. The elves as a race, or the Ents, excuse me, as a race, are fading, dwindling, because they're not being renewed. There are no Entings. Um, But they're not trying to preserve the past in the same way that the elves are. Um, And so it does seem that they're more okay with fading um, than the elves are. In Galadriel, anyway, we can see some resistance to that, um, to the fading. Now, again, she makes the choice to go ahead and fade, and that was was the good thing, but that wasn't a given until that point. With Treebeard, we don't see any big internal conflict in that way. Yeah, yeah, Brittany. I always got the impression that the ends used to be like that they wanted to keep things the same and the outlines had a problem with that. The way he characterizes the difference in the outlook between the ants and the ant wives, and keep in mind, his is not an objective perspective. <laughs> he is telling the ant side of the story, and we never hear the ant wife side of the story. Um, so we have to remember that. His depiction of their different of the difference in their attitudes is that the ant wives were bossier <laughs> to put it really bluntly they wanted to, things to grow where they asked them to grow they planted stuff they cultivated things ants just appreciate the stuff that they find that which they find growing they're much more hands off the ants were and the ant wives more proactive in their attitude towards things, and they wanted to be obeyed by growing things. Treebeard, a little bit uncomfortable with that. Um, And uh, you can even see sort of a hint of smugness in saying, you know, and yet their fields are gone and here we remain. (laughs) So like a man. So like an ant anyway. Yeah, exactly. No, and there is... Uh, yeah, yeah. No, there's there's lots to that. Um, remember, we don't hear an unbiased version. And there's the song, by the way, the Ant and Ant Wife song. Um, remember, this is the, the the number one thing everybody forgets about this. This is not Treebeard's song. 
That is an elven song that he quotes. In fact, not only is it, does it not express his perspective, he protests against it. He ends it by saying, uh, it's not very good. He says, it's elvish, of course, lighthearted, quick-worded, and soon over. Um, and, that, and he points out that the Ents would have more to say on their side if they had time. <laughs> right, so he thinks that it has not done justice to the Entish side of that argument. Um, it is, in one sense, an objective version of the dispute because it's not told from either the Entish or the Entwifely? I guess that would be the adjective. Uh, perspective. Um, but he does give his little biased version uh, of the two. Um, and that, that, that is his, his emphasis there. Kevin? Um, I was just thinking on what Lauren was saying about the, um, about the difference between the elves and the ants. And it seems that the elves tend to sort of jump ship, so to speak, in Middle-earth. And the Ents, uh, Treebeard specifically says, you know, sooner or later, uh, Doom is going to come to us, so we're going to take our fight to Sauron's doorstep. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. Um, In the end, the elves can leave and will leave. The Ents aren't leaving. Um, They'll go down with with the forest. And he knows that. And he's like comparatively fine with that. He doesn't pine against it. In fact, it's one of the most optimistic things that there is. Because, of course, the prophecy of the song is that when they have both lost all that they had, both they and the Entwives, that they will be reunited and find a place where both of their hearts may rest. Um, this has already happened to the Entwives. They've already lost their land. Um, it has not yet happened to the Ents, but he's anticipating it. I almost said looking forward to it. And then I didn't say that because I said, well, that makes it sound like it's a good thing. But I'm not sure he isn't in some, to some extent. I mean, as much as you can look forward to your own destruction and the destruction of everything you care about. Um, nevertheless, he is aware. Boy, it makes it sound crude to say, but there's an upside to like losing everything and being destroyed. Uh, <laughs> but for him, there kind of is. Um, he does not look forward to the prophesied end. And yet... There's hope in it for him. Um, that's the context in which he brings it up. He says, you know, that, uh, uh, and yet that time may be at hand. For if the enemy of old withered the fields, so the enemy now uh, looks like he might destroy all the woods. Um, and that would be bad and horrible, but the fulfillment of the prophecy would not be so bad. And the reunion with the antwives... Um, let me say one quick thing about the Entwives. Tolkien very purposefully resisted and very strongly resisted answering the question, where are the Entwives? <laughs> he said on a couple of occasions in his letters to people who asked him this question, I don't know. Um, and I think... <laughs> I think that to worry too much about where they are now is a little bit miss the point. (laughs) Kelly's getting really mad at me right now. (laughs) Or at least she's prepared to be really mad. Uh, All that we have indicates the likelihood of the Entwives' destruction. But... (laughs) The fact that we don't know that for sure is important. And Tolkien insists on its importance. There are lots of times when people wrote Tolkien letters uh, 
for points of clarification about things in the story. And he responded by apparently on the spot making up a whole huge backstory of things um, and expanding his subcreation in that place when the question was asked to him. There are other places where he adamantly refused to do that. And the, the, the... I'm losing nouns. <laughs> Is there a noun for the state of being missing? The missing? Absence? Absence? Yeah. Not, loss? Yeah. A woman? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, the fact that the antwives are missing was, was, was definitely a very prominent one where he. Um, <clears throat> definitely not. Anyway, uh, the, the loss of the antwives was. was a major, he didn't want that cleared up. It is part of the mythic power of that story that they are missing, um, that they have been lost, and that they might be found, or at least that the ants are still looking for them. Um, and both the cause of their division and their <coughs> long sorrow in seeking for them are both really important parts of the mythic power of the story of the ants and the ant wives. Um, so the impulse to sort of solve this and come up with a definite answer one way or the other, no, the antwives are definitely alive and they're here, or the antwives are definitely dead, or any of that stuff is not really, is kind of missing the point, almost defeating the point, actually, I think, of that story. We have only a few more minutes, and I want to talk about at least one of the two other chapters uh, <laughs> before we move on. Um, one, uh, so let's, let's talk about Gandalf and Gandalf's return. Um, what does Gandalf say of himself? First thing I want to clarify. Gandalf dies. I just want to make sure that this is perfectly clear. Gandalf dies. He's kind of, um, I don't know, dodgy about it. Look at page 491. This is his description. He explicitly says he's not going to say anything about exactly what happened. He describes the fight with the Balrog at the top of 491. Notice he threw down my enemy and he fell from the high place. Gandalf throws this Balrog off of two precipices. (laughs) That's the way to make sure you get the job done. (laughs) Anyway, uh, He fell from the high place and broke the mountainside where he smote it in his ruin. Then darkness took me, and I strayed out of thought and time, and I wandered far on roads that I will not tell. Naked I was sent back for a brief time until my task is done, and naked I lay upon the mountaintop. What do you make of this? First of all, why the emphasis on his nudity? He talks about his nakedness twice in two sentences there. Um, because it really places the emphasis on the fact that he's been reborn and he's yeah. completely new. Yeah, I think that the birth imagery is definitely what we should be taking uh, from that. Um, he returns and he returns new in a new a new body. I mean, he was... Yeah, he, he is totally Gandalf 2.0 from now on, and it is very clear that he is a fully upgraded version of the previous Gandalf. He now, we've seen Gandalf before. Um, as much as Sam might say that he is not 
concerned that uh, Gandalf's fate is to, you know, to be in a wolf's belly, right? When the, in the fight with the wargs, Sam is like, ah, I'm not really worried. I think Gandalf can handle this. I doubt he's going to be eaten by wolves. But there have been plenty of times before when we have seen Gandalf scared of things like that. Uh, in The Hobbit, of course, very significantly, where he is almost killed by the goblins and is actually going to die before the eagles swoop down uh, and carry them away when they're up in the tree and the goblins are, are circling them. Um, he was about to hurl himself down onto the goblin spears and he was going to take out a whole bunch of them, but it would have killed him. Um, so we've seen him certainly act as if he was afraid of death before. Now he talks in a totally different way. Right now he's saying things like, indeed, none of you have any weapons that can harm me. <laughs> he never talked that way before. This is a total, that's a totally different outlook. His, he, uh, he's different, definitely different now than he was. Marta? Um, well, another thing that kind of um, gives us a sense that he's new is that he doesn't, he, it takes him a second to recognize his name again. Yes. And they're like, get it off, get it off. He's like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yes. Yes, it is a really interesting moment. Yes, you may still call me Gandalf, he says. Right? Yes, that name will still work. Um, and you can see a similar business with names with what he says about Saruman after that, right? Indeed, I am Saruman, you might say. Saruman as he should have been. In identifying himself, um, in, in ascribing a name to himself, he is clearly yeah, thinking, thinking differently. So I agree. I think that that's a, that is a really interesting moment. The fact that they can't recognize him at first doesn't seem obviously connected. Um, that is, it's not obvious that his, like, Physical features are greatly different than they were before. Um, you know, Aragorn's comment when he reflects upon the fact that they failed to recognize him when they first saw him was he says, what veil was over my sight, right? Hey, he has some sense that there was magic, as Sam would call it, happening there, right? Um, but yeah, even, even, even the name, Gandalf seems a little uncertain about it first. Yeah, Brittany? Um, I can't stress the fact that he was lightweight, and I didn't really understand what sort of implications. Yeah, the, the, the comment that Guai makes, uh, that, it, that, that he, he barely weighs anything, and yeah. if you let him go, he would just float. Yeah. Um, he is... not 100% sure what to make of that. When he comes back, I mean, again, I would come back to, to Kelly's point about rebirth, which I think... Sort of is appropriate here. When he comes back, he is sort of starting again. Um, he goes first to Lothlorien and is healed. Um, sort of, you know, healed and, and beefed up. I mean, he needs recovery, physical as well as spiritual recovery. Um, so that seems, I think that that's important. Um, and that seems relevant to that, you know, that when Gwaihir picks him up, he says, you're, you're, you're barely here. You know, you have a physical body, but, um, but you know, the, the, the eagle is saying you're pretty scrawny, um, which he needs healing. He needs healing. He needs to be physically complete again, and he's not. Um, yeah, Barney? Um, just a, couple, uh, a quick question. You said that um, he's not really afraid of, of death so much anymore. But when the um, eagle is bearing him away, he said, do not let me fall. Don't, don't right. kill me. Right, right. So, 
Right. Yes. He's, he felt life in him again, right? Yeah. So, exactly. When I say he's not afraid of it, it's not that he like, wouldn't care if he died or not. And he does seem able to die, but he's less worried uh, of like... Anyway, there seem to be fewer things which have the power of inflicting death upon him now. Or at least he speaks with great confidence about that. Um, I mean, none of you... Yeah, attached plummeting to your dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've done the whole plummeting thing before. Not too keen to do it again right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly, possibly. I don't know that we're supposed to see a develop a, a de- the development of a new phobia in Gandalf here, but, you know, plausible, I suppose. Jordan? Well, building on that opening new topic, um, comments that... Dangerous, and so am I, very dangerous, more dangerous than anything you will ever meet unless you are brought alive before the seat of the Dark Lord. Yes, yes. But um, on something new I wanted to bring up is that on page 484, um, he comments that the ring now was passed beyond my help or the help of any company that set up from Rivendell. During the early, it was revealed to the enemy, but it escaped. I had some hurt in that, for I sat in a high place and I strove with the Dark Tower and the Shadow Pass. Yes. But, do you remember the moment when Frodo is on Amon Hen and he's wearing the ring? And he is looking out from the seat of seeing, which gives you the power to see really far distances, and he looks over reluctantly, but he looks over at Barad-dur. And when he does, this seems to get the attention of Sauron, who extends his will, says, hmm, someone powerful is looking over at me. I wonder who that is. And so he starts searching, and he feels... He feels the, the, the attention of Sauron coming closer and closer. And if it falls on him, and he's wearing the ring at the time, um, Sauron is going to recognize him. So he feels it coming towards him. And when he does, this voice in his head starts yelling at him, Take it off! Take it off, you fool! Take it off! Uh, and he feels poised, torn between the eye and the voice. And then in the end, he alone, tormented, makes the decision to take off the ring. Neither the voice nor the eye, but Frodo himself. Gandalf is the voice in that, in that moment. So Gandalf is trying to shield him, and Gandalf is trying to, uh, to get him to... I mean, it even sounds like Gandalf. Gandalf calls him fool all the time, right? So I mean, it's even the sort of the impatience of the voice. He said, this, is, this is not how Iluvatar talks to people, right? This is, this is Gandalf's tone that... that, that that, that we can, you know, fly you fools. Remember was the last thing he said before he fell into the abyss. Um, anyway, so uh, that, that's where he strove with him. But yeah, I mean, so we see him striving in thought with Sauron. And he, yeah, he claims basically I'm bigger and more powerful than pretty much, you know, anything except maybe, maybe Sauron. Although he, he says, you know, there are some against whom I have not been, there are some foes against whom I have not yet been measured. Um, there are some questions that will arise. He has not yet confronted Saruman directly, um, you know, in his Gandalf 2.0 state. Apparently, there wasn't much conflict before, as Saruman was able to kidnap him. Uh, apparently, even without, so far as we know, an actual fist fight or anything, uh, as happens in the film. And uh, in and of course, there are others. We will see him confronting. Um, Finally, in the end, confronted by the Witch King of Angmar, by the Lord of the Ringwraiths as well. And that's also a question, who's more powerful between those two? But, you know, there's really kind of a short list at this point of people who could compete with Gandalf. And that is one of the things that he's pretty clearly saying here. Um, Okay, Um, 
we'll do Theoden next time. We're going to be spending much more time with the Rohirrim anyway, so we'll look at the healing of Theoden in the context of their march to Helm's Deep on Wednesday. All right, we will spend the whole next class looking at the Rohirrim, starting with the healing of Theoden and then touching on the Battle of Helm's Deep and the destruction of Isengard. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.